you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. We are really coming into the final stretch of the book of Philippians. And by God's grace, we're going to finish this before the end of the year, before we get into the, the holidays season. So uh, that's, that's kind of providential in that way that we'll be able to kick off the new year with, with something new. So that's didn't plan that exactly, but hey, God, this is how it's worked out in God's providence, so we praise God for that. But as we come into Philippians chapter 4, we're going to be dealing with a, a text that speaks of, of conflict management. Sadly, there are uh, many, many jokes that can be made about church splits and what has caused various church splits over the years. People fighting over this or that, and I can recall even myself growing up, sitting in a church business meeting when people were literally hollering and screaming across the room at one another while another man shouted, out of order, out of order. Not a pleasant experience. Sometimes these fights can seem significant. They're fighting over something of substance, something that really has something significant going on, but other times they are quite trivial. And a while back, there was an individual who who took to Twitter to ask his followers, what were some of the craziest church fights that you all have experienced? And he collected a list of 25 things, and I'm only going to read a couple of them. But these are things that are just mind-bogglingly trivial, and yet they're causing significant struggle within our churches. One church had an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard, Another church had a 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase, either a black one or a brown one. Should we get two drawers, three drawers, or four? Two different churches reported fights about the type of coffee. In one of the churches, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand. In the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend, and in both churches, members left the church over changing the coffee blend. There was an argument about whether the church should allow deviled eggs at church. There was a dispute about whether the church should allow people to wear black t-shirts, since black is the color of the devil. And one last one is there was a disagreement over using the term pot luck instead of pot blessing, because we're Christians and we don't believe in luck. Yeah, these things... These things don't really matter in the long run, right? We, we laugh about them, and we should laugh at them. They're silly. They're ridiculous. In fact, they're even worthy of ridicule. Like, you guys shouldn't be fighting about these things. Paul, as he has been writing in the book of Philippians, has been writing to seek us to strive after what really does matter in the long run. Things that matter, they have eternal significance. We've been moving through the book of Philippians, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, unfolding Paul's instructions for the church. And what we have seen is that Paul wants us to be growing in the knowledge of Christ. He was willing to set aside everything that he once thought gained for the sake of knowing Christ. And he presses on to know Christ more fully and more truly. And he calls us to do the same. He says that we are citizens of heaven and we await our Savior who will transform our lowly bodies into the image of his glorious body. And so we reach, we stretch forward to that which is ahead. 
and we forget about what lies behind, looking forward to that day. But until then, as we live out our days on this earth, there is the unfortunate reality that there are times when we can take our eyes off the cross of Christ. When we can take our eyes off of the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, and we get caught up in the things of this world. And one of the things that can threaten an individual believer's walk with Christ and can harm and, and be a detriment to the mission of the church itself is interpersonal squabbles within the church. And I use the word squabbles, and I did so intentionally because, well, first of all, it's just a fun word to say, squabbles. But second, the definition of the word itself, squabbles, is defined in this way. It is a petty quarrel or a quarrel about petty points. It's not just an argument. It's a frivolous argument. It's an argument about things that in the long run, they really don't matter. They're insignificant. They're petty. And these things happen, don't they? And we've experienced these things in our own lives, I'm sure. We're convinced of something. We think that it's only good, right, and proper. And yet, someone else has the audacity to disagree with me. Oh, now, come on. Now, we're not having this. And then, so, for whatever reason, we want to stick to our guns on. Even if we realize that, okay, this, this really isn't that significant of an issue, our own pride gets in the way of wanting to let that go. And we stick to our guns about something that just really does not have eternal consequence. It could be something that the two parties, they just don't see eye to eye on even what the details of the event that happened. Right? I've, I've experienced that in my life. Or I remember something in one way, somebody else remembers it completely differently. We don't even agree on the details of what happened. So we have this impasse, this disagreement. One person thinks the other person is lying and the other person thinks the first person is just crazy. And it would be funny if it wasn't so tragic because it harms the church. It can hurt our own personal feelings, right? We can be hurt by these things. It can cause friction with the church. It inhibits individuals from moving forward together for the work of the Lord. Because here's the thing. I'm calling these things squabbles. They're petty. They're insignificant. And from the outside looking in, from a third-party perspective, we can look at it and say, yeah, okay, that's, it's insignificant. They don't really matter. But when you're the person that is engaged in that, it sure doesn't feel that way, does it? It sure doesn't feel insignificant. It feels like there's something real at stake there. It might look silly on the outside, but to the person who is engaged in the thing, in the thing itself, it's not silly to them. When I'm the one having the issue... Ah, that's a whole other ball game, right? It's, it's something entirely different. It's not silly to us. And I can remember, I'm going to use a bit of a silly example, going back to my own childhood. I grew up in Chicago and we got all kinds of snow. So we made snow sculptures. We had fun. We would pile the stuff up. We would shape stuff out of it. Well, we were making a snow sculpture and I was pulled away from the one that I was making with another friend from the community. We were making this thing together. I was pulled away to do something that my parents wanted me to do. I completed the task and I came back to finish the sculpture only to discover that my sister had finished the task for me. She had completed the snow sculpture. And I was irate. 
because that was my snow sculpture and that was what that was my project and it was what I wanted to do. My sister, she wasn't meaning to cause offense. She wasn't trying to be mean. She was just we were making snow sculptures. It's just what we were doing. And so she came along and she helped and she finished it. But that was my turf. And that was my project. You're supposed to mess with my thing. And I demolished that snow sculpture in my anger. I was upset about that. I look back and I see it's silly now, but in the moment it was a big deal. I worked hard on that sculpture. It was a point of pride. That was my domain. And someone else had the audacity to step on my turf. I was upset. Well, similar things can even happen within the body of Christ. We might be serving in a particular capacity in church and someone comes along, they offer a suggestion or they do your task for you and it, it bothers you. It rubs you the wrong way. Hey, that's, that's my job. That's my responsibility. Why don't you mind your own business over there and let you do your thing and I'll do my thing. That's my domain. It's a source of pride for us. And it's really no difference in the long run than that snow sculpture was back when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, however old I was at that time. And this, this can be a variety of things, right? This isn't just, there's not just one thing that we could say. This, this, these kinds of issues pop up over a whole variety of things. I read some silly examples earlier, churches fighting over some silly stuff. But in the moments when we're involved in these things, in our flesh, these things feel like a big deal. And we don't want to let them go. And so our interpersonal problems become much larger issues And what can happen is that they can threaten the unity and consequently the mission of the church. In the book of Philippians, Paul has stressed the need for unity within the church. The church was a suffering church. Paul himself was in jail. They were facing persecution. Paul is writing to this church and and, and urging them to be unified with one another. We cannot afford to be divided about unnecessary things. We've got the world coming against us. We are suffering for the cause of the gospel. And if we're going to allow our little interpersonal squabbles get in the way of the mission of the church, we're going to be divided. We're not only going to be attacked from without, but divided from within. It's going to be a detriment to the cause of Christ. Going back to chapter 1, Paul desires that the church to be working side by side for the advancement of the gospel. That's what we're to be about, to be engaged in gospel work. But if unity is what is needed, Paul recognizes that that requires humility in our own hearts. We need humility. We have to be willing to show deference to others. And that's exactly what Paul says in the beginning of chapter 2. Let each of you consider one another as more important than themselves. Look not only for your own interests, but also the interests of others. Humility is the pathway to unity. As Paul is unfolding that in chapter 2, he gave us the example of Jesus Christ, the ultimate picture of humility, the one who's the King of kings and Lord of lords, and yet he's willing to lower himself to become in the form of a human being, in the likeness of a bondservant, and dying the death on a cross and all the shame associated with that. Paul also gave us the examples of men like Timothy and Epaphroditus who were willing to set aside their own, even their own self-health for the sake of serving others. And as we come to chapter 3, Paul warned us about the confidence of the flesh. And we don't want to place confidence in the flesh, but rather 
our confidence ought to be in knowing Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul has been driving home towards the end of chapter 3. We want to know Christ, the power of His resurrection, being conformed to the likeness of His death. We want to know Christ and to know Him all the more. And that's what we press forward to pursue. When we do that, when we are humble like Christ, when we strive for unity, when we strive to know Christ, we will be working for kingdom purposes as we show humility as we live out our lives with one another. And so as Paul comes into chapter 4, he addresses two individuals within the church, two individuals specifically about working through their differences together. Because there are circumstance, circumstances that can arise that tempt us to take our eyes off the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. That's what we're to be working towards. That's what we're to be looking unto, striving for, stretching for. But when we're tempted to take our eyes off of that, what do we do? What do we do? Well, from these, just we're just going to look at two verses today. And from these two short verses... We're going to see three principles about conflict management that we would do well to remember when things get a little tense. Let's read our text, Philippians chapter 4 and verses 2 and 3. Paul writes, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask also you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and all the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. First, I just want to give us some background information and what we can surmise from the text here. First, we know absolutely nothing about Iodia and Syntyche outside of this text right here. They're not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. They're not mentioned anywhere else in any other early Christian literature that we have available to us today. No other mentions to these individuals. However, from the context and and from the way Paul deals with conflict, not only here but in other places in Scripture, there are some things that we can surmise about the situation as Paul would have been addressing these individuals. First, these women were likely two key women in the church. They would have been women of prominence and significance within the community. It is unlikely that Paul would have named these individuals by name if they weren't already known throughout the whole church. Second, this was clearly a public issue. This wasn't just two individuals who had a private disagreement and they were looking to Paul for some help in the midst of this. No, this was a public situation that everybody already knew the details about, about what was going on. And I say that again because Paul wasn't going to be naming names and calling people out in front of the whole church unless this wasn't something that was already publicly known information across the whole church body. Third, whatever the issue was, it was serious enough to threaten the unity and the mission of the church. So serious that Paul felt the need to address it here. The issue itself in a vacuum might otherwise be inconsequential because it's just a trivial matter. But when the issue balloons to the level that everyone knows about it, it can threaten the unity of the church as people are pressured to take sides. And all of a sudden, we have a divided church And the mission of the church can be threatened as people are distracted from what really matters. 
Thus we conclude that the parties involved, they were high-profile individuals. The issue was known to the whole church. It was serious enough to threaten the unity and the mission of the church. And so Paul steps in and he issues these instructions for these individuals. That's interesting. Some commentators have speculated that this, this issue right here may have been the whole reason why Paul wrote the whole letter in the first place. That his whole argument about our, our common cause in the gospel, about suffering for Christ and, and about uh, the humility and the unity that we're to display and look what the humility that Jesus Christ has played and all of this and the, the importance of knowing Jesus Christ that all of it is leading up to this one point of addressing these two individuals. That's, I think that's a, a possibility. I think that case might be a little bit overstated because just the, the amount of space that is taken up by this issue. But, but the reality is that the themes do seem to be in line with addressing this issue and that the themes were things that these women needed to hear. These women needed to hear that they can rejoice in all things and that they must be willing to, to lay aside our own desires for the sake of the gospel and that there is no higher good than knowing a Christ more fully and pursuing that and leading others to do the same. Well, in any case, we have Paul's instructions. And we have three principles here that I want us to see from this text about conflict management and about how we can engage with things. Now, this is not everything the Bible teaches about conflict management. Okay, there are some situations that would arise that would not be covered by the principles here. But there are times when there are situations and circumstances where these principles we would do well to recognize and to put into practice. First, mediation is biblical. Mediation is biblical. Paul says in verse 2, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche. Paul got involved. Paul got involved. He, He was pleading with the individuals, and he did so as an impartial third party. He got involved as an impartial third party. He, notice how he repeated the phrase, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche. He treated both individuals equally and viewed them as an impartial. He wasn't taking a side in the matter, but rather remaining impartial. And this is critical for anyone being involved, doing, engaging in any kind of mediation work. As a mediator, we have to remain impartial when we're judging and trying to help two individuals come to an agreement about a situation. But mediation, when it is done well, it is good and biblical. Sometimes problems arise and we come to a situation where we can't just seem to revolve these things amongst ourselves and we can forget that there are other good and godly individuals that we could turn to for help to help bring about a resolution for whatever the situation is. Sometimes we forget, perhaps because we don't want to remember. Because we don't want to either, maybe we feel like we're airing our dirty laundry if we get somebody else involved. Maybe we feel like it's a matter of pride. Like, no, I I can handle this myself. I I can take care of it. I don't need to get anybody else involved because I've got this. Maybe we don't want to get a third party involved because we don't want to run the risk of being told that we're the ones in the wrong. We need to be aware of our own hearts in the midst of this, that our pride can get in the way. 
whatever excuse we might have, we might reason, oftentimes it is because of pride that we do not seek the help of other godly individuals who can help bring about a resolution in our lives. Well, not only did Paul himself get involved by urging them to agree in the Lord, but he instructs another individual to do the same. Look at the beginning of verse 3. Paul writes, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Help these women. He's, he, he, he addresses another individual within the church to help these individuals. Now, who is Paul talking to? The short answer to that question is we don't know. He's, he's not named in this text. Actually, it's interesting. The, uh, the word for companion there, some speculate that word companion is actually that guy's name. Oftentimes, individuals were named and, and their name meant something or their name was a word in the Greek text. Well, some speculate that this might be the case, that the actual word for companion is this individual's name. Ultimately, there's no clues in the text itself or even in other literature that, that might lead to that conclusion. So we will just simply have to be content to know that the Philippians knew who Paul was referencing. Personally, I think whoever it was, he was the pastor of the church. Paul was writing to the church. Whoever the true companion was, perhaps that was a nickname for this individual, an individual who had worked with Paul, and he was a true, he was a loyal individual. That's, the word true could also be translated as loyal. He was a true companion. That might be kind of a nickname for this individual. Hey, that, that guy over there, yep, he's my loyal companion. He's my true companion. And so the whole church knew who he was talking to even if he is not named specifically in this text. So I think it is the pastor of the church who is being called to step in and to help these individuals. Another note about the, that word true companion, if you've got the King James that says yoke fellow, and that's just a, that's just a fun word to say too, but, but that word yoke fellow, it's a word used of fellow soldiers serving in the same positions. They are yoked together for a, a common purpose. They are brothers in arms. They are comrades, if you will. Paul and this individual, whoever he was, they've served side by side one another in the trenches for the gospel. They've gone to battle with one another. So there's a unique bond between these individuals. And Paul says to whoever this individual is, his, his comrade, his brother in arms, Help these women. That word for help there means to help by taking part with someone in an activity or to literally take hold of something together. It's like Paul is telling him, okay, my comrade, I want you to get down in the, con- in the trenches with these individuals and help them. Whatever the situation is, help them work it out concept of doing it with them is present, right? This isn't something that's just like, okay, now, now you guys figure it out and, and go and just let them try to figure it out on their own. No, he says, help them. Get engaged with it. You, you get your hands dirty a little bit, if you will. Get down in the trenches with them and, and help them in this task. Help them work through it together with them. Be a mediator in their disagreement, whatever it is. He calls them to help them work it out. A mediator's job is not simply to 
invent a solution in his own mind and force that upon the individuals, but rather to help them work through the issue. But they've got to be willing to do the work as well. The three are to be working together in that process. So the mediator is to come alongside and to help. When we have issues that aren't being resolved, we should not let our pride get in the way of, of seeking a third, an impartial third party to help us view things objectively and work through, through things together. Mediation is biblical. Second principle from this text. Sometimes it is good and appropriate to simply agree to disagree. That can be an appropriate thing to do. Notice Paul's instructions. I, am, I entreat you, Iodia, and I entreat you, Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. To agree in the Lord. Now, there's a few things I want to say about this principle as we, as we consider this. Whatever the situation was, whatever they were disagreeing about, they were not disagreeing about some major point of doctrine. We know this is true because we know how Paul deals with disagreements about major points of doctrine. He addresses those things head on. He is never shy about correcting significant theological error and heresy. Right? Galatians chapter 1 comes to mind where Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is a different one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then he says these strong words. But if even we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. Paul is never shy about addressing significant theological error and heresy within the church. There are many warnings issued about false teachers, about what they will try to seek to bring in. And Paul seeks to warn about the fierce wolves that will come in and divide the flock. So whatever the issue was between Idiotia and Syntyche, it was not an issue of major theological issue. Second, the issue was not a clear-cut sin issue where one person was clearly in open sin and rebellion against God. Again, Paul is not shy about addressing patterns of sin in a believer's lives. Just last week, Paul identified those who were living contrary to the gospel and living as enemies of the cross of Christ. And the issues were behavioral issues. This was chapter 3, verse 18, where Paul wrote, For many of whom I often told you about, and even now tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And he says, Their God is their belly. Their end is destruction. They glory in their shame. He's talking about their behavior, their manner of life, of how they are living. They are living in open sin and rebellion against God. So whatever the issue is between Iodia and Syntyche, it's not something of that level where they're dealing with a clear-cut black-and-white sin issue, which is related to the final thing. The issue was not a clear black-and-white, one person was clearly right and the other person was clearly wrong issue. And we can surmise this, I believe, because we can reasonably conclude that Paul would have addressed this situation. And he would have said, if, if one person was clearly right and the other person was clearly wrong from an objective point of view, 
that he would have just said so. But he didn't. He says, I entreat Eodia, who was very convinced she was right. And he entreats Syntyche, who was also equally convinced that she was very right and that the other person was quite wrong. I entreat them, agree in the Lord. Clearly, these women believed that they were right and the other was wrong, or else the issue would have been resolved a long time ago. To Paul, this was not so black and white. And when it is not a clear sin issue, when it is not a major theological issue, when there are things where from an objective third-party perspective, we can look at it and, and say, okay, maybe you're just both wrong in the situation here. It can be good and it can be right to approach the situation with humility and be willing to say, okay, you know what? You and I are not going to see eye to eye in this issue. We've got a disagreement here. You're viewing it this way. I'm viewing it that way. We have two different perspectives. But I value my relationship with you more than whatever this issue is. And so I'm willing to set that aside. I'm willing to let bygones be bygones so that we can work together for the cause of the gospel once again. I'm willing to agree to disagree for the sake of the gospel if you are. And it can be good and right and appropriate to do that at times. And again, not when we're compromising the gospel or compromising clear doctrinal things that the scripture has clearly revealed in his word, in God's word. We're not talking about those things. Not compromising in an issue where someone is clearly living in open sin and rebellion against God. That's not the things we're talking about. We're talking about individuals who have a disagreement about something and it is outside of those types of scenarios. But unity for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the mission of the church is more important than being right about a matter that has no eternal significance on its own. Unity for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the mission of the church is more important than being right about a matter that has no eternal consequence on its own. So as we think about that, now we have to wrestle through and think through, okay, when are those appropriate times? When is it right for me to say and conclude, okay, you know, we just need to agree to disagree about this issue rather than stick to our guns and, and, and be committed to whatever it is that we're dealing with? Well, we should be asking ourselves several questions. Ask yourself, what is truly at stake here? Truly. I mean, I mean if, if I'm wrong and the other person gets their way in this situation, what is truly at stake in this situation? If the other person gets their way, what's the worst that can happen? And then follow that up with, and how, how likely is that scenario really? Because sometimes we can think of the worst case scenario type of situation. And that may be the worst case scenario, but it's also very unlikely that that would ever occur. So we need to uh, try to evaluate those things honestly. Am I fighting for what's right from an objective standpoint of view? Or am I merely just fighting to save my own pride? We need to be willing to consider this. Would it be best for the sake of the gospel to simply let it go and move forward in the Lord with that other person? To agree in the Lord. 
We have to pray that God would give us wisdom and grace as we wrestle with these things because these things are, it's, it's not easy to discern these things. And that's where getting help from the outside can be helpful in this. An individual can look at this objectively and just say, hey, you guys, you're not seeing eye to eye to this. Let's just let it go and move forward. There are appropriate times when the best thing to do is to agree to disagree and move forward together. And finally, the third principle from this text, remember what team you're on. Remember what team you're on. Look at the last part of verse 3. After he asks this individual, the true companion, to help these women, he, he describes what their life has been like. He says, these, these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul says, look at what these women have done. Look at their history. Look at how they have, they have labored side by side with Paul in the gospel. They've toiled it together. That word for labor carries two ideas. The first is that it's it's hard work. It's, it's actually difficult. It's labor. You're breaking a sweat kind of idea. They, it means to toil with someone in a struggle, and there's, there's the implication in the word itself of opposition that could be coming against. So you're, you're doing a hard work, and that work is opposed. They have labored for the gospel. The gospel has been opposed. The second idea is that these, this work is being done with another person. Okay, it's not work that's being done alone, but rather alongside of somebody else. Hence, the ESV renders it this way, labored side by side with me. That's the, that's the idea. The, the words in the English, labored side by side, that is one word in the Greek. Labored side by side with me in the gospel. Again, this word, it, he's bringing to mind soldier imagery. That was the true companion. He's my comrade, my brother in arms. We have fought for the gospel together. And now he says the same of these women. They were true soldiers together with Paul. He says, hey, you know, we're on the same team here. We're fighting for the same things. We are a fellow soldier here for Christ. We've gone to war with one another. We've prayed with one another. We've shared the gospel alongside of one another and worked for the advancement of the kingdom of God with one another. We have labored side by side, and not only with Paul, but with Clement and with the rest of the fellow workers. We have this reputation of these individuals that they have labored, they have gone to war for the sake of the gospel with Paul and with others within the church. Paul seeks to remind them of this. He doesn't dismiss this as irrelevant information like, Okay, yeah, this is, this is what these women did back then, and, and that was then, but this is now, and as, you know, what have you done for me lately kind of approach. You know, he, he recognizes that, that this was a significant contribution to the life of the church that these individuals had. And Paul values their past labor. He values it. We've gone to war together. When you've gone to war with somebody, these are things you don't, you don't easily forget when you know that that person's got your back and you've got theirs, creates a special bond. I think the reason why Paul brings this up is because he wants to remind them of their past effort, to remind them of what's important. 
and to remind them of what team they are on. Two soldiers don't have to agree on everything in order to have each other's back in the trenches of war. Two football players don't have to agree on everything in life to be able to get across that. When they cross the lines, they step on that playing field, they're fighting for the same team. They have the same goal. They've got to get that ball in the end zone. Two believers don't have to see eye to eye on every issue in order to strive for the common cause in the Lord, the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Conflict is a, a difficult thing for us to deal with oftentimes because our own pride wants to get in the way of the resolution. This is why Paul has been urging us to humility, urging us to unity. And he wants us to remember what team we're on and remember that you don't exist for you. I don't exist for me. We are called to a higher purpose. So he says, don't let your pride keep you from seeking third-party help, but, but humbly get others involved at the appropriate time and ask yourself, is this worth the fight? I mean, really, like, in the grand scheme of things, with, it was, all things considered, is this really, truly worth the fight? There are many opportunities for things to make us take our eyes off of Christ. Many things that could cause us to be distracted from what is truly important and have us thinking earthly things. But let's not let our petty squabbles be some of those things. I believe a big sign of Christian maturity is knowing which battles to fight and which ones to let go. The one battle that we should be willing to fight is the fight for you. that you've given us your son Jesus Christ that even as we sometimes have these difficulties that arrive in this life where we have disagreements with one another I thank you that you have given us the example of the humility of Christ that we can follow after that example to humbly consider others above ourselves and to not have our eyes upon ourselves and what we want and what we think is right and best, but be willing to serve others. Because the gospel is more important than our own pride. The gospel is more important than, than whatever it is that, that we want to hold near and dear to us. Help us to strive for unity within the body, Lord. Help us not to be distracted by the things of this world that that would cause us to drift to the right hand or to the left, but we want our eyes fixed firmly upon Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. I thank you, Lord, for the, your word and how it instructs us about how to deal with, with conflict within the, the body. And though this text isn't comprehensive for all areas of, of disagreement and how we ought to handle everything within the body, but, but in some situations... These principles can guide us and can help us. And I pray that we would remember these things as we approach the various conflicts that we endure in this life. 
Help us, Lord, to fight for unity so that we may stay on mission for the gospel of Christ. That we may know Christ and help others to do the same. Pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.